Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Stu does America. We start by doing the left's inflation lies. And I will say, for all the beating that Brian Seltzer gets uh, from conservatives, I think there's a real place for a show that, in theory, is like reliable sources. Someone who would look at the media and politicians and call them out for their lies, for what they're saying that is totally incorrect when they act poorly. It would be nice to have a show that called them out on it. Not just the people on the right who do that from time to time, but also the people on the left, the people in the mainstream media. We just don't see that all that often. All we see are wonderful promises from public officials like our own Corinne Jean-Pierre, who wants you to know the president has been very, very clear. So I'll say this. The president has been very clear, you know, as you know, the president has been very clear, very clear, very, very clear. We need more money to plan for the second pandemic. He's been very clear. There's going to be another pandemic. The president is doing what the president is. The president is. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. These are items that the president has been very clear on. End of quote. Repeat the line. And so the president has been very clear. The president has been very clear. I was going to foot him. The president's been very clear. Like a billion, two hundred million, seven hundred seven, 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 seven thirty-seven thousand, seven, seven thirty, seven hundred thirty. Very, very clear. All you got to do is look what is being played on, played the, 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 this morning. Look, the president has been very clear. But is he going to specify exactly? No, but he has. The best way to get something done, if you, if it holds near and dear to you, that you uh, um, like to be able to. Anyway. Good God. I mean, that is just depressing to watch, isn't it? Uh, Look, the president's been very, very clear. Very, very, very clear. Now, uh, most of the time, he's not clear, as we know. He just, you know, mumbles and, you know, tries to get through sentences however he can. But one thing he has been very, very clear on is the Inflation Reduction Act. First of all, going to reduce inflation. But second of all, will not raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. The president has been very, very clear about that. New report out. Inflation Reduction Act will cost middle class $20 billion in new taxes, not according to the blaze, but according to the CBO. And this is one of the problems that we have. We have a media who will not look at these things honestly and tell you these things in advance. They won't be honest about it. They knew the Inflation Reduction Act was a sham from the beginning. They knew it like you knew it. We all freaking knew it together. We all looked at this and said, wait a minute, this was called Build Back Better. They knew it was going to cost a a bunch of money. They knew it was going to make inflation worse. But because inflation is hitting from their last big plan, and now it's at the top of the news cycle, and they want to get Joe Manchin to, to vote for it, they're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. This is embarrassing. Of course, no one's going to let them go along with that, right? Well, the media just zipped it. They zipped it and let it go through. And as soon as they got the thing passed, then they started asking questions about it. Uh, It really is amazing. Uh, One thing the Inflation Reduction Act may not do, lower inflation. How about the Washington Post? Economists say it's unlikely the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce inflation, at least anytime soon. There's a chance the legislation could 
eventually tamp down prices by about 0.1 percentage points in about five years, according to an analysis by the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Wharton budget model. But even then, analysts wrote that they have a low level of confidence that the legislation would have any measurable impact on inflation. Now, they wanted to get Joe Manchin to vote for this. Joe Manchin kept saying, I can't vote for all this spending because of inflation. Then they're like, well, what if we give you a lot of stuff and we make it, you know, we sweeten the pot a little bit for people that you know really well. And he said, I will vote for the Inflation Reduction Act. Just call it that. Then I can say I'm fighting inflation and, you know, uh, everybody will be really happy. Well, Manchin has now admitted that the Inflation Reduction Act won't tame inflation for Americans anytime soon. Here is uh, Joe going through that admission. When it comes to inflation, is it misleading to call this the Inflation Reduction Act for Americans when it's not going to make their grocery bill cheaper? It's not going to make everyday goods cheaper for them. Why would it? Why would it? Well, immediately it's not. But I mean, we never said anything happen immediately like today. It's turned the switch on and off. No. Well, it seems like you actually did say a lot of things that would indicate that it was going to happen immediately. But of course. Uh, we are just supposed to ignore that, I guess. No one's supposed to be called out on that fact. How about John Harwood? Uh, this is from CNN talking about the name, the Inflation Reduction Act. It's not that this isn't a big bill, John. It's not that it doesn't accomplish things that have not been accomplished before or haven't been addressed in decades. It's that does it live up to its name? And you're hearing administration officials and Democrats having a hard time with that. No, it doesn't live up to its name. Let's be real. The, they called it the Inflation Reduction Act as a marketing device, uh, in part to uh, lock down the vote of Joe Manchin or to, to uh, reassure Joe Manchin that they were focused on his issue. It is going to have a negligible effect on inflation. Now, look, that's that's in theory, good commentary, good reporting. The problem with it is it happened after the bill was signed. That doesn't help anybody when you do it after the bill is signed. Do you understand the difference? It's a real problem. How about uh, ABC News? This is start here. This is the day after the bill was signed. Listen to the commentary about what this will do for inflation. Will the Inflation Reduction Act reduce inflation? <laughs> Sounds like a straightforward thing. It is, and one would think it would, given the name. But despite this new legislation's name, a lot of folks say the Inflation Reduction Act is really a misnomer because hmm. Americans won't be seeing relief from high inflation anytime soon. If you thought this was going to mean a, a lower grocery bill or, or lower prices at the gas pump, um, it, it won't happen, it, uh, certainly anytime soon. Oh. I know President Biden has been touting this as, you know, bringing uh, Americans immediate relief. I think the best Americans can hope for is relief, perhaps months, but really more like years uh, down the road. Yeah, and now, of course, in theory, the inflation problem should be over in years by itself, let alone an Inflation Reduction Act to do that. Uh, but do you remember when Joe Manchin said, well, no one said anything about immediate I'll give you that quote again. I know President Biden has been touting this, as you know, bringing Americans immediate relief. So why do they name it the Inflation Reduction Act? Listen. Why do they call it that then? Like, is that what's the rationale for saying this reduces any sort of inflation? I think the rationale is it's all about politics and oh. you have people heading to the polls in just a few oh. short weeks uh, for, for the midterm elections. Okay. Calling something the Inflation Reduction Act, hmm. I think, um, is you know, the Democrats trying to be hopeful and oh. thinking, wow, that'll be top of mind for voters when they go. They're going to think we really reduced inflation. That's after the bill signed. 
after the bill's signed, we get it's all about politics. And when Democrats go to the polls, maybe they'll think we did something about inflation. That's after the bill was signed. Of course, people did try to ask them about whether this would uh, reduce inflation straight out. Here is uh, Representative Raskin. Yeah, and what parts of the bill do you think will will quickly work on that specifically? The, the, uh, next question. Uh, next question. Wouldn't that be so nice? It, uh, you know, sometimes I don't want to be a liberal because uh, most of the time they're really annoying. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of issues there. But wouldn't life be so much easier if you could just like say, ah, you know, that was a tough one. Uh, next question. Wouldn't that be great? If you don't have to answer any of the real questions about your bills, you don't have to actually defend your positions. You could just say next question when everyone asked, asked you these questions. It would be great. Um, here is another one. Uh, Jonathan Carl. Now, Jonathan Carl asking a pretty basic question to Corinne Jean-Pierre and watch her bumble it. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. But the Congressional Budget Act uh, Office, which is nonpartisan, said that there would be a negligible impact on inflation this year and barely impact inflation at all uh, next year. I mean, isn't it almost Orwellian? How can you call it inflation reduction no. when the nonpartisan experts say it's not going to? So I appreciate that. I appreciate the question. We've actually addressed this. The, the I appreciate CBO. You it was Orwellian. the top line number. There's more in there that shows uh, that it will have it will money have uh, from. Money. Remember how we're remember doing this how, too. It's mm-hmm. it's making sure that Could billionaires uh, in corporate America are paying are paying their fair share, making sure fair that it's sure. that the tax the code is a little bit more fair. And so when you do that, when you when put you it that, in its totality. You will see that it will it will bring down, lower the deficit, which will help fight inflation. Oh, she's like, it's she's like you know if you're like a kid and you get the the menu in front of you and it has a maze on it and the kid just keeps going down the wrong thing and then going to the end and like tracing their line back to go through the maze another direction because they went the wrong way. That's Corinne Jean Pierre on every answer. She's just constantly tracing her lines back and trying to find another way to get to the pancakes at the end of the color by number uh, menu. Uh, How about uh, Jayapal? She was talking. I mean, she's so distant from claiming that it fixes inflation. She almost acts as if inflation is some extraterrestrial word. It is ultimately going to lead to a reduction in overall inflation, but most importantly, to the budget that people have every single day. Inflation is like a theoretical word that economists use, but what families <laughs> feel every day is the up or down of costs. Oh, okay, so there you go. It's a theoretical word. All of this is happening. I mean, almost everything that we played here happened after the bill was passed or after it had already gone through the real debate on the bill. And that's the problem, right? The pressure that the American people could bring on lawmakers to not pass a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act that they all know does not reduce inflation. Well, when that period's done and then the mainstream media comes along, then they come along with their tough questions, then they come along with the truth. It doesn't help anybody. This stuff needs to happen beforehand. And you know what? With every conservative bill, man, it always does, doesn't it? When conservatives try to pass bills, every little complaint, every little nook and cranny of those bills gets poured over and every little tiny issue is exploited to its fullest. Think of what they're doing with with the overturning of uh, Roe versus Wade. You've heard about like individual people. And there are sob stories about what's going on with the, the abortion they had to drive 45 minutes to get. Every single one of them is a big national news story. Individual people. 
Not, a, not, a, not how many lives have been saved, how many babies have been born. You don't hear that. You just hear about everything that makes people look at the right in a negative light. Look, the bottom line here is that we should be able to have a media that does this job by itself. We shouldn't. I mean, look, I like the fact that the blaze is here. I work here. Uh, I need a job. I got to do something. I mean, it's going to be pretty much this or competitive eating. So I might as well uh, stick with the gig. But but like we shouldn't live in a society where the blaze is needed. In reality, if the media actually did their job, you wouldn't need alternative media like The Blaze. You wouldn't need it because we'd have it that job being done already in the mainstream media. But that's just dead now. So we have to do something here. In theory, a Brian Stelter type show hosted by somebody who actually looked at this stuff honestly and didn't get broken by Donald Trump and driven off the left uh, lane uh, of the road would be really valuable. Until we have something like that, though, we're going to have to keep fighting every single day to try to bring you the truth. We'll do it. We'll do it from a conservative perspective, one that we admit fully and are proud of. Uh, But there has to be somebody out there who's just looking at the truth and trying to push back. Because right now, the left has the media. They have every newspaper. They have seemingly the heads of every company. All this stuff is going on, and there has to be a way to push back. In a minute, we're going to talk to Paul Bond from Newsweek, who's looked at this issue and seen that Republicans and people on the right have decided to try to turn the tables and push back on especially a lot of these woke companies to make a difference. Is there a difference being made? We'll get to that next. California's energy apocalypse. Yes, it's here. It's just beginning, California. Everything will be fine. Don't worry about it or worry about it. California has announced they're going to ban the sale of new gasoline cars. This is by 2035, though it ramps up pretty darn quickly. Uh, The decision to take effect by 2035 will likely speed a wider transition to electric vehicles because many other states follow California's standards. And that's a big, uh, big problem. The new policy, detailed Wednesday morning in a news conference, is widely expected to accelerate the global transition toward electric vehicles. Not only is California the largest automaker or market in the United States, But more than a dozen other states typically follow California's lead when setting their own emissions standards. If those states follow through and most are expected to adopt similar rules, the restrictions would apply to about a third of the U.S. auto market. And of course, car companies don't want to make regional cars. It's hard enough to make money as a car manufacturer, so they're going to probably follow these things. And to be fair to California for once... Uh, these car companies have already announced this. They've already announced they're moving toward electric cars by 2035. Uh, Like, for example, General Motors. They're not going to make a single internal combustion engine. At least that's what they're saying now. We'll see what happens, at least for passenger cars. Washington will ban new gas-powered cars in 2035 as well. They've announced they're on the California bandwagon, and many other states will soon follow. Now, the guy who's made more Uh, money and had more success actually creating electric cars than any other person on earth, he believes that electric cars are a big part of the solution. But he's warning, hey, we still need oil and gas. Yes, that's what Elon Musk is saying. And you think if you're, I don't know, you shouldn't be to the left of Elon Musk on the environment. I didn't know there was any room over there. Apparently there is. Now, actually, Elon, you know, I don't necessarily agree on all all of his climate change worries, but He's done more than anybody else. Remember, he also has a solar company and he's creating a spaceship company so we can escape global warming. So 
I don't know, to me, maybe uh, to the left of Elon is probably the wrong position to take. Now, this is not all that California has done, and this is important not only for today's monologue, but also for our political future, because Gavin Newsom is trying to position himself for the Democratic nomination in 2024. He looks at Joe Biden, he realizes, I mean, they, look, we're not the only ones. They all know he sucks too. They might not say it, but they all know it, and they all see a lot of vulnerability there to maybe, I don't know, pop in and say, hey, Maybe you should run me. I mean, uh, you guys like the last guy who was cheating on his wife publicly. Maybe you'd like me, too. Maybe uh, you'd like a little Gavin Newsom in your life. I don't. I don't want the guy from freaking, you know, uh, American Psycho as our president. But that's basically who he is and basically who we'd be getting. So he's running ads in Florida, obviously. Why would you be doing that? He's also passing a bunch of splashy big environmental rules like the car ban, but also a whole wave of aggressive new climate measures coming from California. A couple of details. The western United States is facing likely a prolonged and record heat wave that could lead to temperatures as high as 115 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah, that's right, according to a National Weather Service report. As a result, the California Independent Sim uh, System Operator is seeking to bring all available resources online to handle higher electricity demand and expects to issue voluntary, uh, voluntary energy conservation notices over Labor Day weekend. So you have all these new laws that are coming into effect from uh, Gavin Newsom, including it's about $54 billion of climate spending. And they're already, before those things even kick in, saying, crap, one thing, we don't have enough power. And would you be shocked if I were to tell you the state that just told us they were going to ban every other type of car so you have to have electric cars and at the same time is passing $54 billion in climate spending, would you be surprised if like a day later they didn't have enough energy to power their grid? Not the future one where everyone has an electric car, but the one right now. That's real. The top three conservation actions, according to California, are to set thermostats to 78 degrees or higher, avoid using large appliances, and avoid charging electric vehicles, as well as turning off unnecessary lights. How, how can we possibly be going down this road? How can we possibly be falling for this? This is insanity. It's insanity on every level. We all know, of course, that basically it's only rich people who get electric cars anyway. And we all know that they don't run long enough. You don't necessarily have the range that you might want out of a vehicle like this. Look, there's nothing wrong with a Tesla. You know, they're, they're nice cars. And if uh, you want to go, they go super fast, zero to 60. They're very, very fast, straight line speed. They've got some really, really good technology in them. There's some things to like. And, you know, I, generally speaking, like Elon Musk. I think he's a smart guy. But, like, to force this through the government is literal insanity. Now, if you go back decades, California already tried to do this. They tried to do this a long time ago to force car companies to make electric cars. And famously, those cars failed. There was a documentary or two made of, about this process called How to Kill the Electric Car. Or uh, Who Killed the Electric Car, I'm sorry it was called. I think it was Martin Sheen who, uh, who narrated it. And it was terrible. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. They were basically claiming that GM intentionally killed their electric car despite spending a billion dollars to develop it. They were like, ah, we're just doing this to pose like we really care 
about electric cars. But what happened was California said, you have to start making electric cars by a certain date. They have, the technology was not ready. There were a few people who were super passionate about wanting one of these. They were called the EV1. But the, you know, overall, they didn't sell. People weren't really interested in them. They had like an 80-mile range at the time. No one wanted them. So they went off the market. And that uh, story ended. They wound up actually shredding all the cars, which was the big uh, conspiracy. Why would you s shred these cars? I wish they didn't shred them because they'd probably be worth a fortune right now. Ugh, I really wish I did have one. Anyway, um, so let me go through some of the facts on electric cars. Again, I'm not... There are some great electric cars. I'm not an opponent of them. I happen to uh, put an order in for a, a, a very, a very, very much gas-powered car. It's going to wipe out all uh, benefits of any environmental policies in California. The $54 billion they just spent. When this car, if this car ever actually arrives, it will wipe out all environmental benefits of the entire state. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Screw you, Gavin Newsom. Here we go. Uh, what exactly do we know about electric cars? Because you have to actually look at this with a critical mind. We can all call them zero emission vehicles. Why do we do that? Because from the time the battery is charged, they don't have any emissions coming out of the tailpipe. They drive around, they come home, you plug them back in, repeat, no emissions, right? Well, of course, there are major issues with that when you, you know, stop and think about it. Electric cars require large batteries, which are often produced in China using coal power. According to the IEA, just producing the battery for an electric car can emit almost as much as a quarter of the greenhouse gases that a gasoline car emits across its entire lifetime. Now, when you say zero emissions, you're not including the building of the battery, the making of the actual car, the production. You're just saying, hey, what happens when I pull out of the driveway? That's obviously an insane thing to do. Over its first 60,000 kilometers, a long-range electric car will emit more CO2 than a gas car. Having a second electric car for short trips could actually mean higher overall emissions, and that's what we see a lot of times people doing. They have a gas-powered car for their normal driving, day-to-day, -day, driving all over the area, and then they'll use the electric car for short trips into town or uh, bouncing around on the weekends. Well, that makes everything much, much worse. People think they're helping the environment, they're actually hurting it, if you uh, wanna go down this road. Um, now, uh, what happens if we actually hit these lofty goals of all these new electric cars? If the world follows through and gets 140 million electric cars by 2030, the IEA estimates that it will reduce emissions by 190 million tons of CO2. That sounds like a lot, except unfortunately, it's a mere 0.4% of global emissions. So ridiculous thing, we revamp our entire society, revamp our entire infrastructure, move all to electric cars, and we save 0.4% of emissions. Does that sound worth it to you? Doesn't sound worth it to me. Unless you're invested in Tesla stock right now, you're probably saying, no, that does not sound uh, worth it. The uh, uh, National Bureau for Economic Research ran a report, and What's fascinating about electric cars is it doesn't, these benefits, it's like the loan program. They're not going to the most needy among us. They're not benefiting the most needy among us. They're benefiting highfalutin Democratic voters, generally speaking. Uh, this is what the National Bureau of Economic Research found. We find that people living in census block groups with median income greater than about $65,000 receive positive environmental benefits from these vehicles, while those below this threshold receive negative environmental 
benefits. So people who don't have a lot of money, maybe driving around cars that uh, have a lot of uh, you know, issues. Maybe they're near the power plants that are producing the nice clean energy for Beverly Hills. And they get hit with all the fumes and you don't in the, in, in the, uh, in the nice house you have up in the hills. That's kind of the way environmental policy works. It's typically what we're doing is we're sending our emissions over to other countries. Uh, and we are typically pr- polluting other areas We've done this with recycling. We've been sending our recycling over to China for years and years and years and years so they can throw it in the ocean over there. I guess that's environmentalism uh, for you. And thank you for coming to my TED Talk. In fact, I'm not going to say thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I want to send you to another TED Talk. Here's an environmentalist talking about electric cars. And we're going to get something here that I know you love if you watch this program on a regular basis. You're going to get some charts. It's Chartapalooza. 2022 Conservanerds Unite. You can see the conventional vehicle produces about 30 tons of CO2 over its lifetime. How does the electric vehicle look? Pretty good, right? Because some of that electricity comes from renewable sources, and because the electric motor is far more efficient than the internal combustion engine, it produces less CO2. But there is a problem with this graph. This graph says that at zero miles, zero CO2 has been produced. And if you think about that for a second, it means the two cars have magically appeared in the showroom out of thin air. As we discussed, that's not exactly what happens. They don't magically appear. The starting point certainly is not zero. So what is that starting point actually look like? And what is the right way to compare an electric vehicle and the gas-powered vehicle? If you've never seen this chart before, I want to warn you, I mean, it is, it's just, it, it will hit your conservative soul and make you smile. Uh, maybe we'll send out a link on, uh, on Twitter to the actual full TED Talk if you'd like to take it in. Here's a clip of it. You'll see the charts develop in a very pleasing way. So you can see the conventional vehicle comes to the showroom having generated about six tons of CO2. And now this is the critical part. Making a battery isn't easy. The materials required are harder to find, and making a battery cell requires a huge amount of energy. So the battery vehicle comes to the showroom having generated about 12 tons of CO2. And you can see you'd have to drive it around 80 or 90,000 miles before you offset that CO2 penalty. But it is better in the end. So the electric vehicle still looks good here as well, right? Well, this is where it gets interesting. You see, the conventional vehicle has a 400-mile range, while the electric vehicle in this example has a 125-mile range. So really, we need to be comparing a 400-mile range electric vehicle. And as you may have guessed, a longer range requires a larger battery, which means a larger CO2 penalty. And now you start to see the problem. Over its expected lifetime, it has emitted more CO2 than the conventional vehicle. It has contributed more to climate change than the conventional vehicle, and that is the crux of the problem. It has produced more CO2, but we've measured none. And so society is happy to continue to call these zero emissions. 
It's amazing because to hear him talk about it, this is like an environmentalist. He's not some conservative guy talking about this. His perspective was like, well, these car companies want to look good to environmentalists, so they're doing this, envir- uh, this the zero uh, emission vehicle, and then they're just taking all of the emissions that would normally come out of the car and passing it off to the people who are building it earlier and to the power uh, stations that are making the power that, that, that wound up fueling the electric car. So they, they get credit for zero emissions, while everyone else is the one who is actually doing the, uh, the polluting, as they would say. Now, I don't think necessarily I have that exact same perspective, but what he's talking about in theory is true here. If we call them zero emission vehicles, and then all the emissions happen before we see them, and they get pushed off to places like China and maybe a lower income community around your, a city near you, isn't that just wonderful for the Biden voters who want all of this stuff to go. The people who think Gavin Newsom is a good governor think this is a great idea. They've got money, they're not in those communities, they don't live in China, they don't care. And that's the problem here. Not only is all of this sort of nonsensical anyway, as we noted, I think, I think personal vehicles, as far as global emissions, I think the number is 7%. So if you got from all emissions, uh, that we have now on personal vehicles, completely deleted it. Everyone went electric and all the electric cars were magically put here with no emissions somehow. And they all got their power with zero emissions. We would be minus 7% of, of global CO2. It would save us 7%, not much, especially when China is growing so fast and adding one, 2% a year just themselves. None of this makes any sense. And even if it did work, This doesn't actually play out the way they're claiming. There's a lot of issues living uh, in California. If you happen to be in Los Angeles, you may have seen this, an emergency alert telling all of LA um, uh, in Eastern North Pacific Ocean to evacuate. That was sent in error. This is what it actually said. Emergency alert system. A civil authority has issued an immediate evacuation notice for the following areas, including Los Angeles, California. Now I will say this. A lot of problems in California. Climate, not the one you should be worried about. You should be worried about dodging like human you know, waste on the sidewalks before you really even get to that. But I wanna give you a very serious warning. If you live in Los Angeles, do not treat that alert as an error. Evacuate Los Angeles immediately. I'm joined now by Alex Epstein. He's the founder and CEO of the Center for Industrial Progress and author of the book Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. It's available now. Make sure to grab a copy wherever you get your books. Alex, how's it going? Uh, it's going great, Stu. You're, you're too gracious to say this, but I was late for this interview, so I'm, I'm going to give you the really good stuff I've decided. Oh, good, good. There's some secret stuff in the back of the book that I may have missed, so I'm very yes, excited for exactly. this. <laughs> uh, Alex, uh, thanks so much for writing this book. I know it's been, uh, you know, you've worked really hard on it. Uh, we had you on back, I think it was like 2014, on your last book. And this book is sort of like updated with tons more uh, to, to go through. I went through the entire thing, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, I kind of want to bring in the audience audience, though, uh, maybe with a sort of a defining of terms. There's a lot of uh, concepts that you talk about in the book that I think are really important to understand where you're going with this. So let's start with the sexy stuff, the glossary, um, and talk about uh, the difference between the anti-impact framework and the human flourishing framework. 
All right. Well, typical of you, you started out with really philosophical stuff, which I, uh, which I appreciate. Okay. So um, first, let's talk about what a framework is. So a framework is a starting structure. And in you know physical things like building buildings, you think of what's the starting structure of a building. But this also works really well for thinking of mental things like our thinking and our communication. Because whenever we're thinking and communicating, there are certain basic things that are the framework. And I, I categorize these in terms of values, uh, assumptions and methods. So values in terms of what are we going after? What do we think is good to go after? Assumptions, what are the basic things that we believe that shape our expectations and crucially our predictions? And then methods, how do we go about evaluating specific things? And what I talk about is that the prevailing framework that is being used to evaluate fossil fuels makes no sense to anyone who is remotely pro-human. And I call this the anti-impact framework. And what I find what I find is when you make explicit the framework that our leaders so-called are using and that many of us inadvertently operate on, almost no one would accept it. So I'll just give you the alternatives, the anti-impact framework versus the human flourishing framework. So in terms of values, what the anti-impact framework says, and you can see this in all of our discussions right now about this mansion, what I would consider debacle, is it's saying our goal should be to eliminate CO2 as quickly as possible at all costs. This is the dominant goal in the world today when you think about energy. You know, The UN has it, corporations have it. They're all talking about net zero as quickly as possible without thinking about, well, what does this mean for human empowerment? What does this mean for human flourishing? And on the human flourishing framework, it says, no, eliminating CO2 cannot possibly be our primary goal. Our primary goal, if we're thinking about the world, needs to be to advance human flourishing on Earth. And CO2 policy is at most one aspect of that. But you need to think about many other things, including, I argue, the benefits of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. If you look at the assumptions of how we evaluate fossil fuels, what you find is that when we have all of these people who are predicting that if we continue to use fossil fuels, there's going to be this apocalypse. And if we get rid of fossil fuels quickly, life is going to get better. And historically, I show in chapter two, there's a 40 or 50 year track record of these predictions being totally wrong. Namely that we're told that we're going to run out of resources in a catastrophic way. Our environment is going to become catastrophically contaminated. And then we're going to have you know, mass death either due to global cooling or global warming. And what you find is these catastrophes don't materialize. And in fact, life gets better in large part because of the fossil fuels that are demonized. For example, they've reduced drought-related death or they've helped reduce drought-related death by a factor of 100 down by 99% uh, due to things like fossil fuel irrigation, fossil fuel drought relief vehicles, et cetera. And so all of this, why do our so-called experts get it wrong? They operate on what I call the delicate nurture assumption, mm -hmm. which is this view that the earth, if we don't impact it, is this wonderful balance that is stable sufficient and safe, and then our impact ruins it. So they always expect that the next impact is gonna ruin things. Whereas in the human flourishing framework, the proper assumption is what I call the wild potential uh, assumption or premise, which means that nature is actually dynamic, deficient, and dangerous, and human impact is necessary and often productive and often improves the earth. So if you have one framework versus another, you're gonna see using fossil fuels as inevitably catastrophic versus reducing industry and fossil fuels as at least potentially catastrophic. And the third thing that's the most straightforward is in terms of the method of looking at fossil fuels. 
the anti-impact framework and the way we're taught to look at it is we do this insane thing where we only look at negative side effects and exaggerate them and we ignore benefits. Now, this would be insane to do for prescription drug. You'd, you'd carefully weigh the benefits and the side effects. But in the realm of fossil fuels, it's considered totally acceptable to ignore the huge benefits, even though fossil fuels provide things such as food by powering the machines that produce the food and by providing the fertilizer that we need to grow food. And so the proper method on the human flourishing framework is what I call full context evaluation. You look carefully at the benefits and the side effects. And so the interesting thing about these two frameworks is that once the anti-impact framework is exposed, almost nobody is willing to defend it and will believe mm. it, but it's operating as a cancer in our society because it's not exposed. And so what I do in the first three chapters of Fossil Future is I show the way we're thinking about fossil fuels makes no sense. We're clearly ignoring the benefits. That's That clearly has disastrous consequences. And it's ultimately because uh, we have this false assumption that the earth will be great if we don't impact it, so we don't need fossil fuels, and the earth will be terrible if we keep impacting it. And then also we have this value focus where we're focused on eliminating CO2 and more broadly other impacts on nature versus improving the planet for human flourishing. So I think 90% of the issue is these debating frameworks. And if you're on a human flourishing framework, it's obvious we need more fossil fuels. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I, I want to go through because you, you, you got through a lot of, of this here. And I want to focus on a couple things. So if, you, if you're if you kind of just hearing this stuff for the first time, it might seem, I think, shocking to people. People are, it's almost ingrained in our society, even through conservatism and liberalism throughout, no matter what your politics are, that we are a negative influence on the earth. We uh, do things that are terrible to the earth. And that's the anti-impact framework where you're thinking about the, 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 the best case for humanity is to not impact the earth. Where the opposite, where you're talking about human flourishing, is we do impact the earth. And we all obviously know that. If you're ever inside air conditioning, you know that an impact on the earth can be very, very positive. But people just don't think of it that way. They don't think of impacting the earth as it could possibly be positive. You also bring up the delicate nurture assumption, which I thought was a really fascinating way to think about it. And I was, as I was thinking about it, I realized it's just everywhere. I mean, this is the paved paradise to put up a parking lot sort of idea that everything used to be perfect and now things are terrible because we have concrete and pavement and fossil fuels. And it's like, you know, you, you go through this in, in a lot of detail in the book. The earth for human beings kind of used to suck and our impact has been a positive for humans and that's how we should look at it. Yeah, 100%. An aspect of this delicate nurture assumption that I didn't say explicitly is what I call the uh, parasite polluter assumption. And so this is the idea that our impact is either we're, we're being a parasite, so we're just taking resources from a, a generous earth, but we're being too greedy, or we're just polluters, meaning that we, you know, we just make it dirtier. In the case of climate, they think of it as we're making it uh, unstable. And this is just such an inaccurate view of us. The earth is not a, a hospitable place naturally at all. Now, it's an amazing place, don't get me wrong. It has all the raw material we need to have amazing lives, but that raw material was useless for all of human and pre-human history until very recently, because nature doesn't give us that much in terms of usable resources, and it gives us a lot in terms of threats. And so the only way we can get around that is through being productive. We need to produce new resources, including ways to neutralize and overwhelm 
threats, but our physical bodies are so limited that we cannot do that unless we use machines to radically amplify and expand our productive ability. Amplify means doing the same work we can do manually, but doing far more, like a modern combine harvester that can reap and thresh 1,000 times more wheat than a really good manual laborer can. So one person can do the work of 1,000. Or I talk a lot about incubators. That's a way we expand our productive abilities. We can provide the value of a hospitable environment to a very vulnerable baby, uh, which we just can't do with our physical bodies. So, so much of what makes the world amazing is the ability to use machines to do work for us. And that requires energy. And for that to be accessible to everyone and useful to everyone, it needs to be cost effective, namely low cost, reliable, versatile, meaning powering every type of machine, and then globally scalable. It needs to be available to billions of people in thousands of places. And that is the unique achievement of the fossil fuel industry. No other industries come remotely close to having globally cost-effective energy. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you point out sort of this positive feedback loop that results from this and that, you know, you have uh, machines that do basic labor for people, which allows them not only to have leisure time, but also time to be employed and have careers in jobs that are intellectual, that think they're thinking about the next step on how to improve humanity even more. And this continues uh, a cycle of positive gains, uh, you know, throughout our history. And it's something that it's almost impossible to ignore when you actually stop and think about it. But I think one of the problems is people don't think about it. And you spend a good amount of time in the book, uh, something that I think really does affect fossil fuels, but also is much more wide ranging than this, which is the, the anti-impact knowledge system and designated experts. And this, I thought, was just a fascinating way of explaining how you're, it's not necessarily, you know, by any means, you don't go through in this book and criticize scientists. I mean, certain scientists you have problems with, but generally speaking, like, you're saying, like, the, the research is there in a lot of places, but we have a filtering system that is letting us down. Can you explain this relationship? Yeah, definitely. This is, this is, I think, one of the most valuable parts of Fossil Future, and it's something that I definitely didn't understand in the past, but I've, I've thought about it for about 20 years or even more than that, because I've always wondered, how do, you, how do we make use of the huge value of experts, which we obviously need in every area of life in different ways, without succumbing to the all-too-common problem of doing really wrong things, because we're told the experts think we should? And, and studying history and intellectual history, this is a particularly urgent problem because you see supporters of slavery being considered. You, you can, you know, there, that's often, oh, this is the expert view. Or eugenics, this is the expert mm. view. I mean, a lot of, you know, the Nazis had quite a bit of quote unquote expert support, racism more broadly, as a huge amount of expert support throughout history. And so there's this question of, yeah, how do we avoid this, but still get the benefit of experts. And I think one of the key insights is that most of the time when what we're told the experts think ends up being really wrong, it's not because it is or follows from what the researchers in the field say, but because it's some huge distortion of that by the institutions we're trusting to access the research. And so I have this four part thing I call the knowledge system, which captures what goes on. You have the researchers who do the basic research that's specialized and wide ranging, but then you have what I call synthesizers, people in every field who are, who are trying to synthesize the vast amount of knowledge in a field. And what I point out is that synthesis is very hard 
And if it goes wrong, even if all the research is as good as possible, the synthesis can be horrible. And we have a real life example of this, which is called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the UN. And I point out that when it synthesizes climate related research, it totally ignores the fact that through what I call fossil fuel climate, fossil fueled climate mastery, we've decreased the rate of climate related disaster death by a factor of 98% over 100 years. And we're never told this. Not only are we not told this, but the UN reports don't even mention this. I mean, can you imagine a polio report that didn't mention we're safer than ever from polio because of a polio vaccine? And really, fossil fuels are like a climate vaccine. They make us so safe from climate relative to what they used to be. So this synthesis that on its own can go wrong. And then I point out there's also dissemination institutions. So people who take these specialized syntheses people like the New York Times, and they're t they're giving it to us. And those people distort things like crazy. And then the final stage is evaluators. So people who are taking the alleged scientific knowledge in some field and then saying, this is what we should do about it. And here you can just totally go wrong, even if everything else went right. And what I argue is this is clearly going on because we're only looking at negative side effects of fossil fuels, particularly on climate, and not benefit. So even if the knowledge system functioned perfectly uh, in the other respects in climate, which it definitely isn't, just the fact that our evaluators are ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels can make them 180 degrees wrong in their prescriptions because it's very possible the benefits outweigh those negative side effects. And that's what I spend the whole book arguing is, is kind of obviously true. Yeah, it really is. A, it's a powerful argument. Um, and I'm looking at my prep already and there's no way I'm going to get through all the stuff that I prep. So I want to take <laughs> okay, a quick I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer it in tweet length statements. <laughs> yeah, only oh yeah, a couple hundred characters or less, Alex. Uh, no, actually, okay. we'll be back in a minute. You're doing you're doing great. We're really getting through a lot of this stuff. It's really interesting. The book is called Fossil Future. We're going to take a quick break. Come back on the other side with more with Alex Epstein. Alex Epstein, author of Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal and Natural Gas, Not Less. Uh, one of the things you point out in the book, Alex, is it's not just about electricity. We are always talking about electricity, but you spend a lot of time talking about the secret sauce of fossil fuels. Uh, they are unique in their ability to solve these problems. Why? So I think you know, I divide energy into four categories. And I think the, the, there are different ways you can divide it, but I think this is a pretty good way to do it. I mean, it's the best I've thought of. That's why, that's why I do it. Uh, so you can think of electricity, uh, liquid fuel for transportation, industrial process heat, and residential heat. And as you indicated, we're taught to think of energy in terms of electricity. And I think a big reason for this is there's this push for so-called renewable solar and wind, and those directly generate electricity and have a lot of difficulty with many of the other applications, particularly uh, you know, liquid fuel for transportation, particularly heavy duty transportation, and then also industrial process heat, which is very large amounts of heat. And the thing is that it's the, the best way we've found to move large vehicles, large distances, and often small vehicles as well, but definitely large vehicles, large distances, is to use this very, very stable, liquid, very dense fuel, uh, which is liquid hydrocarbon fuel, but we call it oil fuel. right? So that's, that's just this amazing thing that we don't have any way to approximate with batteries, and that's just that's just an issue that's very hard to overcome. Also, the store not only is oil denser than batteries, but oil in effect provides the storage free, 
nature compressed uh, you know the energy over time. We basically what we do is we take oil and we you know we find it, we refine it, and we release the energy. But natural processes concentrated and stored the energy for us. Whereas for a battery, we have to make our own new storage system, which can be very very expensive, especially at scale. And it's a similar thing for industrial process heat. Here you can do just about everything with electricity, or I think everything with electricity, but often it's cost prohibitive because the fastest, the, the best way to generate a lot of heat is very often using just fossil fuels and burning them directly. And if you look at electricity, often fossil fuels are the cheapest way of producing electricity. Uh, but think about how inefficient it is to use fossil fuels to generate electricity, where you have what are called conversion losses, because you have to generate, you have to burn the thing to turn a turbine to generate electricity and then generate heat from that versus burning the thing directly. Burning mm. the thing directly is often the most efficient way to do this. And we have a whole world that involves industry that burns fossil fuels directly because it's the most efficient thing. And that enables us to have the standard of living that we do. So when people say, oh, let's just use electricity, let alone let's just use unreliable solar and wind somehow, they're being very irresponsible. They're not thinking about all these direct uses of fossil fuels for heat, nor are they thinking about the use of liquid fuel for transportation. Can you just spend a second, too, on the industrial process heat? Because that's one that I don't think anybody thinks about. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you burn fossil fuels, so they're good at a lot of types of heat. So there's residential heat, which is something like using natural gas to heat your home, which is just unmatched in terms of its efficiency. It's amazing. But then there's also things like steel making, like making, you know, making plastics. Now, plastics are made of oil and gas, but they're also usually made using oil and gas. And so it's anything where you have a lot of heat that you need to make things. So much of our world is based on generating really, really hot temperatures for things. You know, sometimes it's heating water, sometimes it's heating metal, can be heating different, you know, different other different liquids. Uh, but just we don't think about this because we're not, and more broadly, we're not taught to appreciate how amazing our world is and all of the different forms of productive impacts we have to have on the world, including making things really hot uh, for the earth to be a livable place for humans. Mm. Um, okay, so there's there's all sorts of claims though that what you're saying isn't true. Like these, there are companies out there that are saying they're 100% green. You talk about Apple in the book as a specific example, but can you talk about how these claims of we are 100% uh, green and, and, and emission free are not true at all? I mean, one indication that they're not true is the current process we're going through, which I think is going to be a disaster for this country, which is this, you know, Manchin-Schumer thing that they call the Inflation Reduction Act, and I call the Manchin Green New Deal, because it has all the essentials of the Green New Deal in terms of mandating, to, or at least trying to get us to use a lot more solar and wind, and then restricting fossil fuels. And the question is, if Apple and Google and all these companies are really 100% renewable and they're so profitable, why isn't everyone doing this? Why isn't th why is this not winning out on a free market? Why do they need these incredible policies and you know hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies? And the truth is that there's no company uh, at all that is 100% or remotely 100% solar and wind. The closest thing that we have in the world is Iceland, is you can call it close to 100% renewable in terms of its electricity, not its energy overall, because they need oil for transportation. They happen to have good hydro resources and they have good geothermal resources, which as I talk about in chapter six are very special to Iceland and their topography. So it's not, it's not something that you can do with existing technology around the world. But 
in any case, solar and wind is not powering, you know, any place in terms of really doing that. So what these companies are doing is they are not, what they're not doing is they're not setting up solar panels and wind farms and saying, we're going to power our operations just using those without the grid. What they do is go on the grid, which is about one eighth solar and wind around, say, the U.S. And what they do is they literally pay utilities to give them credit for other people's solar and wind and give other people the blame for their coal, natural gas and nuclear use. So it's just a total scam. But the reality is that solar and wind are unreliable. They cannot power the grid with existing technology because batteries are way, way, way too expensive to make that remotely possible in terms of storing the electricity. And so we have a fossil fueled world. Fossil fuels provide most of our electricity. Otherwise you have nuclear and hydro, which the green movement also has huge hostility to. And so instead of people recognizing this, unfortunately our large tech companies or many of them are trying to virtue signal at the expense of brainwashing the public into thinking that 100% renewable is possible and good when in fact it's 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 impossible and if you try it, it's massively destructive. Hmm. Uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is going through, um, you're not saying that there could not never be any negative side effects from using fossil fuels. There theoretically could be some, they are maybe not even negative, but just something that changes. And you talk a lot about the concept of climate mastery. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Can you can I, can I give a little bit more perspective on that? Because we look at this as something, when we change the earth from what it used to be, We've changed it, harmed it to uh, this new state, and what we need to do is fight to get it back to the old state. Climate mastery right. is a totally different way of thinking about this. Yeah, and I like the way you put it, although I'd put it even more aggressively, because it's not really about getting it to the old state, it's about getting it to the state it would be in had human beings never existed. Mm. Because people recognize, hey, the earth changes, different things change over time, and they're like, that's great, but if we change it, that's bad. And I'm just highlighting this because there's, I call this human racism, right? It's the view that anything the human race does is bad and anything the rest of nature does is good. So this, because people think of it as, oh, I love nature so much, but it's not about that. It's about singling out one part of nature and we are part of nature and saying this part's impacts are bad. And it happens to be us. I mean, it'd be one thing to just have a weird hatred of lions or something like that. <laughs> that would be bizarre, but you hate your own species. That's much more destructive and, and much more, uh, I think, ultimately immoral. So uh, I got slightly distracted by, I thought there's an important point, but then you, what was the, what was the rest talk, of the question? Uh, talking a little bit about climate mastery. Oh, mastery. Yeah, of course. So when we're thinking about our you know, effects on climate, and you're talking about fossil fuels in particular, if you just think about it in a common sense way, you think about, okay, well, what do what does burning this, particularly putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, what does this do to the global climate system? And that's a legitimate thing to investigate. But you also have to look at what is all of this energy that's generated along with the CO2? What does this do to the livability of climate? And if you think of it in terms of common sense, it's pretty obvious that, well, wow, it helps us keep cool when it's hot, which is pretty important, particularly in Texas. Uh, it helps us, you know, it helps us be warm when it's cold, which is even more important. People don't know that there are far more cold-related deaths in the world today than heat-related deaths. You know, it helps us alleviate drought through irrigation, it helps us build sturdy buildings that make us much more protected from storms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, when we think of climate, we ignore what I call these climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. That's one. And then when we look at the effects on climate, there's this assumption that they're only negative 
and that they must be catastrophic. And that is not a scientific assumption. I would regard it's a primitive anti-human religious assumption, which is this belief that all of our impact is bad, so it must lead to kind of hellish consequences in practice, versus saying, hey, when we put more CO2 in the atmosphere, that's gonna lead to more greening, which is generally a good thing, and it's gonna lead to more warming, and the science tends to say that the warming is gonna be more in the colder parts of the world, and if far more people die from cold than of heat today, then probably more lives are gonna be saved by warming directly. And then there can be other consequences in terms of storms and floods and this kind of thing. And particularly sea level rises, you would expect to increase because you're having a warmer world which expands water. Uh, but it's not looked at in this level-headed way at all. It's looked at, oh, it must be the apocalypse. And we assume all of our impacts on climate must be bad, which how could that possibly be true unless you had this anti-humanism? How could our impacts on the system adding more CO2, how could everything be worse? Particularly recognize that, well, we used to have 15 times more CO2 on this planet. You know, as a more tropical world, we could have lived in that world had we needed to. Uh, in some ways, it's more hospitable when it's more tropical, but we're nowhere near what the world used to be in terms of CO2. So you start to see it's just this huge anti-human bias. It's the opposite of the scientific perspective it's purported to be. Mm. And I will say, obviously, it's completely irrational to vilify one one piece of, uh, of nature, except for snakes, which is totally rational, <laughs> and you should do it, and I, I stand on that. Um, can you talk a little okay. bit about ESG scores? Because you go through some of the problems that could stop the, the right answer here, using more fossil fuels from coming to pass. ESG scores is a real threat, and it doesn't come the normal way through government policy. Sure, and let me, let me just qualify one thing. So the one thing you would think about, so I just wanna give a CO2 levels in case somebody tries to get me on this. So we're sure. at about 0.04% of the atmosphere today, mm -hmm. and it's been 15 times higher throughout history. And as I argue in chapter nine, we have no plausible way of even getting one fourth to its historical high. So I'm talking about like that's a totally livable planet. It absolutely would be to get even to this very, very high mark that we're nowhere near and have not going to be in the foreseeable future. Uh, the only thing with CO2 that you might be really concerned about if, if it kept going up forever, which it won't because we'll have nuclear and superior alternatives and other things like that. Uh, but at what you really look at, oh, if it, if it got as high as it used to be like 6,000 parts per million, is that hard for humans to breathe at or does that compromise our breathing? And there's you know conflicting reports on that. But the point is the levels of CO2 that are remotely possible in any future are not gonna make the planet unlivable. They'll make it more tropical and you can say, okay, well, there are cons to that. I'm worried about sea level rise, but you can't say it's gonna make it this hellscape and that it's all bad. That's anti-human bias. And of course you can't ignore the mastery. Okay, ESG scores, yeah. So ESG has fortunately come under attack recently. You know, people like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk have attacked it. And I have a lot to say about ESG in general, but the, the basic idea of it is that, that these people who promote ESG standards, which really originate a lot from the UN, have somehow identified the ideal environmental, social, and governance practices that everyone should follow, which I would be skeptical of anyone saying this, but the UN claiming to have identified universal business practices when the UN is just based mostly a collection of total failures of countries that know nothing about business. How could this, and, and certainly none of those people run businesses successfully or almost none of them. So it's just this absurd premise in the first place that they have these universal norms. But then if you look at what they have in terms of environment, 
it basically means get off fossil fuels and also be hostile to nuclear. So their view of environment is we shouldn't impact environment in general. It's evil to impact the climate. And so we should just stop doing it as soon as possible. And all these companies should make these commitments to do it. And that's very, very dangerous because when they make these commitments and often they tell lies about meeting these commitments, as I've mentioned with Apple and others, it it not all it it, the main thing is it just pollutes the global discussion. It makes people think that this is possible. And so it encourages these destructive anti-fossil fuel policies. And also the companies then have to lobby for anti-fossil fuel policies. So you guys are a victim of this in Texas. We have all these outside companies, all these companies from other states lobbying you to stay hooked on solar and wind, even though the Texas freeze of 2021 should have illustrated that, wait a second, it's not good to rely on sources of energy that don't work when it's really cold. Yeah, it seems like the time you really need the energy. And believe me, when my entire first floor flooded this past year, I, I oh, did no. very much take that into account. Um, let me, uh, there's so much to go through with you in this book. It's so, it's so good, it's so detailed. Um, we, you know, there's, you go through the, the climate alarmist It's very claims. long, it is people very, see it. It's very long, but incredibly worth it. I, this is the type of book you will go back to a hundred times when you're talking to people online and talking uh, you know, uh, to people, hopefully you're trying to convince, to understand that this is a really important part of our future. Um, let me, let me uh, end with this. Um, I, I was, I'm very won over, as, as you know, we talked for years about this, on the human flourishing um, sort of uh, framework. And in, in some ways, I feel like the book, in some ways, is limited by talking about fossil fuels. I, I feel like there's a broader conversation based on that fr framework, which we should see a lot more of the world this way. I, you know, uh, when it comes to medicine, when it comes to technology, these things were constantly worried about this negative impact we may or may not be having, having and not worried about the positives that could come around the corner. Can you broaden this just a little bit for us before you go and, and talk about that in, in a sort of maybe outside of the fossil fuels realm? I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it has a lot of implications. I mean, I, I've I've done some work applying it to other fields. I like talking to people in other fields who are doing work and, and trying to help them in different ways. What I found myself is that kind of the most useful thing is to is just to keep furthering the state of the art with this issue of energy. Mm. And then I learn more and more about how to think about it. And then that helps think about other things because I don't really have the time to become this much of an expert in anything else, <laughs> uh, at least for a while. And there's still a lot more. To, I still have a lot more to learn about energy and particularly how to explain these issues. And I'm really interested these days in energy policy. What are the specific policies that we that I can give to, you know, Congress people and senators to actually make things better? That's kind of my current obsession is what I call an energy freedom platform, which people want to follow along. Go to energytalkingpoints.com and subscribe uh, to the list. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. If, if people listen to these frameworks, particularly every industrial realm, the human flourishing framework versus anti-impact framework applies because it's just you think about plastics you think about agriculture you think about you know chemicals which are very connected to plastics you think about mining all the same dynamics apply where our impact is viewed as intrinsically immoral and inevitably self-destructive and so i think what i've done in with energy can be very directly applied to those. And sometimes I give speeches at those companies mm. and you know, talk to them about this kind of thing. But then it can also be, I think it can be applied to anything technological uh, as well in terms of when you're thinking about these technologies, there's a hostility toward new technology and it tends to have this form of, 
looking at and overemphasizing negative side effects versus ignoring benefits. So I think a lot of what I've done applies to technology. And there are other fields as well, uh, but there's some complexity there. And and I would just say that one other variable I talk about in chapter 10 that's important, I think, to listeners of this show and viewers is freedom. Like a key element of fostering human flourishing is freedom. And that's why in chapter 10, I have a whole chapter about freedom and energy and why that's important. And I think people who think about human flourishing but don't think, don't recognize that freedom is a requirement of human flourishing. Are even though they're not anti-human, they're thinking about how to benefit human life in a way that ultimately ends up being anti-human. You could even put the communists in this category. They claim to right. care about human flourishing, but they don't value human freedom. And look at where that gets us. <laughs> gets you to very bad high numbers of people who are dead, unfortunately. And uh, and that's you know, look, we get rid of fossil fuels, the same type of thing is going to happen. Um, and I, I'll pitch this to the generalists in the audience uh, that maybe aren't just an expert uh, like Alex. You know, t- talking about his concept on the knowledge system and hum- the human flourishing framework and arguing to 100. They're all in the book, and they will help you, I think, in a bunch of different areas as well, not just energy, though energy when it comes to human beings and their flourishing is so vital. And in this case is made incredibly well in the book. Alex Epstein, he is the founder and CEO of the Center for Industrial Progress. The newest book is Fossil Future. Don't miss it. Why global human flourishing requires more oil, coal and natural gas, not less. Grab a copy of it today. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's a great book and, and it's just an incredible amount of work I know you put into it. and I, We do appreciate it. Thanks as always, and thanks for reading it so carefully.